When we were thinking about what I'd talk about tonight, uh, especially because we've been talking about expanding the practice to include all beings, I thought I would talk about um, loving all beings. And I had in mind really to talk about that because there was there were some stories I wanted to tell and they seemed to fit into that kind of a talk. It's been a peculiar kind of a day though to do this kind of a talk because for who knows what reason, just as you're all aware of, it's been a day where I got up and I felt kind of internally like I got out of the wrong side of the bed. It's the same kind of a day as normal. Nothing happened to me extraordinary. But as you know, the vicissitudes and the vagaries of mind states are just what they are. So my mind, just for whatever reason, is making grumbly thoughts all day long. And I'm thinking it's an odd day to be making a talk about loving all beings because <laughs> I, I, I feel absolutely convinced that that's the capacity of the heart, mine as well as anyone else's. And here's my mind, just making up grumbly stories all day. And then on top of the grumbly story, it made an extra grumbly story, which is, how can you give a talk like that if you're grumbly? I mean, how can you talk about the ubiquitous nature of love and the spaciousness of heart if you're not feeling it? And then I worried about that. And the, 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 a little bit, not a lot though. And I'm happy about that. <laughs> I'm actually happy about it because I come in and I look at everybody and I feel completely happy. So the whole day was, in a sense, a drama that disappears in a second, as do all those kind of mind dramas that we make up out of nothing. It's just kind of interesting. I actually suspected it would all day long. That's really why I didn't worry about it a lot. And I did want to tell these particular stories. One of the things that I wanted to talk about is the fact that I think these are really odd instructions and everybody does them so well when you think about these instructions and you start in the beginning of the week and you say okay now we're going to aim loving kindness to one particular person to a benefactor and everybody's okay I'll do that and then it seems to be like something else when we're doing loving kindness to a friend or a neutral person or beings we don't know, or the difficult person, as if we haven't been doing that all along. I think it's so odd to think that we could be radiating loving kindness, like on a telephone wire to only one person. And the notion that we, in fact, send loving kindness only in one particular direction to one person, when in fact a moment of loving kindness is a moment of loving kindness. I loved it when Joseph read the Metta Sutta the other night and the last line of which says above, below, in all directions. Well, of course. I mean, how could it be other than above, below, and in all directions? It's not two feet to the right because I love Sharon very much and she's my Metta guru. If I am feeling loving towards her, then I am feeling loving. I don't direct it out of one part. It's not vector-directed. And yet we think it is, and we have so much trouble with the concept of, and I'll now expand it to include, but it's just a concept. A moment of radiating loving-kindness is a moment of loving-kindness. 
I wanted to talk about the notion that loving everybody is really the easiest of all of those. And we work up to it as if it's going to be the hardest. We practice on the benefactor, thinking, well, the benefactor generates great uh, gratitude in my heart, and so I'm, now I'm really manufacturing loving kindness in response to the notion of my benefactor. And then I'll work on the next easiest person and the next easiest and then even neutral people and then hard people and then all people. And it seems in that progression like all beings is going to be the hardest of all. But actually when you think about it, it's the easiest. You don't really need to remember anything. You have to have discriminating awareness. Well, this one a lot and this one a little and this one a little bit more. And just loving, and also that it's the natural state of the heart. In fact, to do anything less than love all beings is to somehow circumscribe what's the actual resting place of the heart and to make a difficulty for ourselves. And I think we do that. We do it quite unconsciously when we've been frightened. It's actually, I think, fear that circumscribes the heart makes us feel we have to be a little bit careful rather than just simply open and loving and trusting. But if we're not frightened, we're really loving. It's a natural condition. What we're trying to do here with all of these instructions, this group of individuals and that group of individuals, is we are providing all of these possible wavelengths for us, any of us, to tune in to that natural capacity of the heart. And especially as people come together in groups and we have interviews and listen to each other, it's clear that for each person, one or another avenue seems to be the avenue that allows them to touch into that natural capacity. I really try to avoid the notion of unlocking the heart because it sounds like the heart is locked. Heart is the heart. And the condition of the heart is to be friendly and compassionate and respond in altruistic joy. That's the natural condition of the heart. What we need to do is remember it by touching into it. And so all of these categories, which are really very artful, so by saying, you know, they're just a kind of heuristic uh, design and really we are always offering loving-kindness to all beings is not to say that it isn't valuable because one or another of those wavelengths is going to be for each of us the way that we will reconnect with ourselves and remember that that's actually our natural capacity. And when we do, um, I like the word remember a lot, we become whole. Uh, I think that we forget that uh, the word remember is, I like to think about it, as relative to the word dismember. We use dismember to mean that we are cut off literally from parts of ourselves. And when we remember ourselves, we remember what's fully true about us. We remember actually what we are. And actually what happens here is we fall in love with ourselves. And not because we're special, but just because we are really loving beings. It's an extraordinary thing. Often we talk here about special people like 
the Dalai Lama or Mother Teresa or Albert Schweitzer or Deepama as if they are specialer than we. And they have the same hearts as we, they just remember more frequently, perhaps, than we do. But regular people remember, not even amazing people. One of the stories I wanted to tell you is about a woman I met recently. I was traveling and teaching and through some connection, somebody said, you ought to meet so-and-so, and she was an alumna of the same college that I went to and doing extraordinary work, and she's an editor of a magazine. And I met her, and uh, uh, when I met her, I found, she, she said, well, we'll meet at my house because I, I have a 10-year-old son, and uh, he's home from school in the afternoon, so I need to be here with him. And I was surprised because she graduated from college at the same time I did, so I know how old she is, and 10-year-old son was surprising. Uh, I said, 10-year-old son? And she said, yeah. She said, well, it's a long story, but, you know. <laughs> so we met at her home, and her 10-year-old son is an adopted child uh, with very considerable special needs. Uh, actually, uh, using a wheelchair, and born with very considerable physical needs. Uh, and she, she, that wasn't what we met about. I mean, he was just around and part of the conversation and part of what was going on. And at some point in our meeting, she said, well, uh, at the time, uh, I was volunteering in, a, um, in an orthopedic hospital, and uh, he was there, and um, he needed to be adopted, and uh, so I adopted him. And uh, we were talking about people who did... Um, she'd been telling me about her neighbor, who, pract- who was well-known for acts of kindness and special, extraordinary, compassionate heart. So I said, this is also an extraordinary act. I mean, it's an extraordinary act to adopt a child at 50. She said, oh no, this was not extraordinary at all. She said, I fell in love with him. I didn't have a choice. And it was very interesting to me to to take it out of the category of anything special that she did. She said, this wasn't the, you know, we, we were talking about people who did acts of kindness. She said, this wasn't an act of kindness. I fell in love with him. I, you know, I didn't, there was nothing else. It's not, a, it's not a problem for me. I just fell in love with him. And I thought that there was an important kind of a lesson for me to remember about when we are in love, nothing is even an act of kindness. Nothing is special. There aren't even such things as generosity. I think uh, I was in India only once, about five years ago, um, I went to see a, a teacher there in the Ramana Maharshi tradition. Lots of my friends had gone, and I was eager to meet him as well. And uh, I was there in a, in a group with my friend James, and we were talking about teaching generosity. Part of this tradition is the tradition of generosity talk about generosity, I'll talk about generosity tomorrow. We talk about generosity, which always sounds like uh, a considered act by a a person who's the donator or the giver, and the person who's a receiver. 
And he was this teacher in the Ramana Maharshi tradition, and he said, there's no such thing as generosity. Well, that was surprising to James and myself, since we'd first of all just given a little mini talk on how important we thought it was. <laughs> and, uh, he was a teacher that we both admired, and he said, there's no such thing as generosity. There's only the natural order of things. He said, if there is food on your plate in front of you, and you are hungry, and you pick up the food and you put it in your mouth, you don't think of your hand as doing a kind act. You don't think of your hand as being generous. There's no generosity, there's just the natural order of things. Here there's food, here there's hunger. Put the food in your mouth. He said the same thing, if there's someone in front of you who needs something, and you have it, the natural order of things is to give it to them. It seemed exactly clear when he said that. I think that what he, I know, I think, I think I know that what he was talking about was when we see clearly the interrelated nature of consciousness and that we are each of us in fact one consciousness enlivening all of these bodies, but really just one of us, then we feed each other and take care of each other in the same way as we do ourselves. It's a piece of vision that happens, it's a flash of vision, it's a flash of understanding that we hope to have, we hope to have often, actually one of the insights of the insight practice that we do is the insight that there is no separation that we actually all are sharing this consciousness and it's enlivening all these bodies it's a very interesting thing though to be a human being because while we have the capacity for that insight which motivates and allows us to do the loftiest of uh, selfless deeds, we're still living in bodies. And the bodies have nervous systems that respond on a quite visceral level with fear and with a sense of the need to preserve oneself. I think it's written into the DNA and that we somehow have the capacity actually I think are called as human beings to live that edge and inhabit both worlds to know that these, this, this body in get, gets involved in relationships and we have particularities people that we recognize who are our close kin have a visceral response that wants to take care of this body and preserve it and we have also the possibility of recognizing that we can touch into that place where we are shared consciousness and just one of us and not behave from a place of self-serving. One of the stories that um, I thought about a lot in the beginning of my practice in this Buddhist practice was the story of the Buddha as uh, the Bodhisattva in a previous life 
probably many of you know it, the story of him walking along the edge of a cliff and hearing the cry of lion cubs over the side of a cliff at the bottom of this deep ravine and looking over the side of the cliff and uh, seeing a lioness at the bottom of the cliff with lion cubs that were crying because she was in a debilitated, weakened state, had no milk to feed them and was too weak to look for food to nourish herself. And in the story, the Bodhisattva, without a moment's thought, throws himself over the cliff to provide food for her so that she can feed the lion cubs. In the more um, grisly version of that story, she's even too weak to eat him, so he cuts his wrist so she can drink the blood so that she can feel enough strength to eat him and feed the cubs. And in the beginning, I didn't like that story at all. Um, it was it was an upsetting story because I thought, um, I think because I felt myself to be so far away from that sort of selfless behavior. And it made me feel badly about myself and my own capacities. But this 20 years ago, and I don't, I don't know if it's from just 20 years passing, sometimes I think, I hope it's from a certain degree of wisdom or insight. Sometimes I think uh, it was from having grandchildren, but plenty of people get that understanding without grandchildren. Helps me to have grandchildren because they were one of the things, one of the aspects that caused me to think if it was one of my grandchildren in one of those stories, I would not hesitate a moment. I mean, it wouldn't even come up as a question. And that was a wonderful realization for me uh, because it at least showed me that I had that capacity to make that sort of a judgment. And then I realized that what I needed to do was to extend the capacity of my grandchildren to everybody's grandchildren, and actually all beings as my grandchildren. And that that wasn't uh, a capacity that was only limited to people who had grandchildren. It's really limited to people who could relax in their heart and realize that we are all connected to each other. Feeling communal is actually a relief. You know, that we share a life together. It's a great relief because I don't feel I have to do everything. Other people are doing things for me. It's really so. You know, I look at people who are doing some wonderful things. A friend who teaches uh, Buddhism uh, for, uh, he lives in Dharamsala and uh, he goes out on missions for the Dalai Lama. And he teaches in some incredibly difficult places. Uh, I get newsletters from him where he tells everybody on the newsletter where he's been in outer Mongolia, very difficult places in Africa, descriptions of sleeping on the floors of Chinese train stations, and the food that he has to eat in some of these places while on these trips to teach or teaching in Medellin. And when we see each other, or when we write or fax each other, 
I say, those are very dangerous places. Medellin, why are you going to Medellin? He said, well, somebody has to go there. So when I first thought about it, I began to feel badly a little bit that here I was sitting in Barry, otherwise sitting in Spirit Rock. It's not dangerous. It's not not uncomfortable. Not in any way jeopardized. And I began to feel, well, I was kind of a not such a valiant Dharma teacher, and he was really a valiant Dharma teacher. And I realized that I'm not seeing clearly in those moments. The best way to hold that is with extreme pleasure that he is doing that, because I have a feeling that he's doing it on behalf of me, and that since he's doing it, and it's obviously a capacity that he has and that I don't have, I don't have to do it. And that he's doing it on behalf of me. I, on the other hand, am having an enormous family on behalf of him. That everybody is doing a piece of everybody else's job. Just as you are each doing your life on behalf of me, I am doing mine on behalf of you. It's a great relief. Look at what we are doing as a communal life. So there's a really very big relief about feeling communal. Some people have said in the in the group meetings that they find that uh, especially since yesterday since uh, being aware of directing loving kindness to the people in the room that they find that they are most comfortable saying may we be free of danger may we have mental happiness may we have physical happiness may we have ease of well-being I had a phone call from uh, my friend Kim, who's the minister of the uh, Unitarian Universalist Church in uh, Boston, the Arlington Street Church, probably many of you know it, who practices here and uh, has really become quite excited about metta practice. And she said last Sunday in the Arlington Street Church, and many Sundays, the entire congregation, 700 people, the end of the service stood up and all holding hands said, may we be free of danger, may we have mental happiness, may we have physical happiness, and may we have ease of well-being. So there were two things that were left over from Joseph's talk last night that I hoped I would say sometime in the course of tonight. And I have some more things to say, but the two things that, two lines that he said that I wanted to remember to say were that the quality of our being is a source of infinitely more happiness than any happiness that comes from anything that we have. When we are just us, in touch with our capacity to love and wish other people well. We are tremendously happy and tremendously upheld. I think about when Kim told me that vision of the 700 people in Arlington holding hands and saying that, I thought, hmm, we're not touching each other here. We're not holding hands. And then I thought, yes, we are. Just can't see it. It's kind of an invisible hand-holding because there's something about this shared silence which is tremendously hand-holding. 
tremendously supportive. And the other line that Joseph said last night that really is one of the favorite, my favorite lines of suttas, favorite thing to talk about, is the exhortation of the Buddha to the monks at near the end of his teachings as he sent them out to um, teach all over India. Very stirring, go forth, bhikkhus, go forth, O monks. And that each of us, in fact, goes forth from here in touch with that capacity to be loving and goes forth and in whatever idiom, wherever we each of us are, we go forth and we spread this word so that Kim goes forth and does it in the Arlington Street Church and someone else goes forth and gives that message either verbally or just in the essence of their being. That this particular capacity for wishing well is really a reflection of how we are when our minds are at ease and it is our very being that radiates it. Don't really even need to go forth and spread the word even with the word. We spread the word with our very being. I have this vision of uh, how we are, really. And uh, I think everybody's like a radio antenna and that we each of us go around broadcasting, uh, whether or not it's out loud. Do you know that radio beams are filling up this room if we had a radio here? And we turned it on, we could tune into a lot of stations because the whole room is full of those radio waves. I think they're full of our waves as well. And that when we are comfortable with ourselves, when we are not frightened, when the mind is not flurried and disturbed, that we are in fact radiating very good programs. And the people around us are touched by it. We, in fact, care for the people around us just by providing that kind of wholesome program around them. It's amazing what happens to us when we care for other people, when we wish well to other people, or we have the sense of wishing well. It's so nurturant to ourselves. We feel good. Did you notice, for instance, when you uh, adopted a neutral person, how much you started to love that person? They became special to you when your neutral person came around the corner. I remember the first time I uh, was practicing metta in this building, first time I was practicing metta as a formal practice anywhere, was here. When I got up to the uh, neutral person, I realized that there weren't so many neutral people, that even in a relatively tranquil, orderly place like this, we make immediate decisions about people just on the basis of they sit in an odd way or they eat too fast or they take too much food or something. We've made decisions or we like them because they especially, they do everything just in the way that we would do it, so then we like them. And someone had come to the retreat, a woman had come to the retreat late. I was sitting down in the last uh, room in Catskills and um, 
a yogi had arrived, arrived late and she was in the room across from me. And sometimes when people arrive and other people have been sitting for a while and they haven't slowed down yet from the outside world, they seem so clumping. They, they, they walk too fast and they clump too loud and they slam the door. And she did a number of things that I noticed. <laughs> but nevertheless, she wasn't neutral. I decided to um, adopt her as my neutral person. And especially as soon as I adopted her as my neutral person and was caring for her, I began to appreciate that she was probably clumping and slamming because she wasn't relaxed, because she was a little bit wired. So instead of being annoyed at the clumping and the slamming, I began to feel caring about her. I hoped she would really feel better and that she would ease up and relax. And not only did I begin to not have any antipathy for her, I began to be fond of her. She actually did slow down and get a little quieter. And then one morning, she wasn't at breakfast. And I started to worry about her. Because you look around the room, you see where is your person, and she's not there. <laughs> then I went back to my room, and her door was closed. And then her alarm clock rang. And it rang and rang and rang. She didn't put it off. I began to think maybe something happened to her in that room. And especially since you already know that I have that <laughs> propensity to construct a worry, <laughs> I began to think maybe I should go. Maybe something dire happened to her in that room. Maybe I should check. And then, of course, you know, in yogi mind, you can get all tied up about that. I should, I shouldn't, I shouldn't open somebody else's room. Ultimately, she emerged from the rooms, and I don't know what it was about the alarm clock. But I was aware of having so much energy ch tied up in cherishing a person, really being alarmed about them, concerned about them, thinking about them. A person who I didn't know at all, and actually had had some antipathy about, and now I had was my dearest companion. I really spent all that time thinking about her. I think about if we could do that with everybody, if we could love everybody as our dearest companion, because we could, really, imagine what the world would be like. There's a Pablo Naruda poem that says, let's all sit down and count to ten. I don't remember the rest of the poem, but <laughs> that's the important... That's the... That's the only important line. That's the only important line. The gist of the rest of it is that the world would be different if we would just stop. If we would just stop, all of us at the same time, from frightening each other. There's a meta-riddle in the texts. Sharon usually tells this story, but she hasn't told it yet, so I will. <laughs> Thereby, if she was planning to do it tomorrow, too late. 
you were. <laughs> There's a meta riddle, it's a test. And um, her story was that she was practicing in Burma with Upandita and uh, doing metta. And at one point, unaware of this riddle, uh, Upandita asked her the riddle. So now I'll ask you the riddle. Here's the riddle. You're walking in a forest, and with you are your benefactor, your dear friend, a neutral person, and your enemy. And at some point as you're walking along, a desperado leaps out from behind a tree and says, uh, one of you needs to die, I'm going to kill one of you. And you are going to be the chooser of the person. You can choose any one of the five of you, but one person dies, the other four go free. Who do you choose? So I'll let you reflect for a minute. Everybody chose? When I ask people that, and I ask a class of people, we won't do it here because there's a lot of us, and I'll tell you the answer, but when I ask people, and it's a smaller class, and we can say, okay, what do you think? People will say, well, I choose this one. Why? I said, well, there's a reason. And then people will say, no, no, I choose this. And someone always chooses for a plausible reason, the benefactor, which seems odd, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> But actually, often people have chosen as their benefactors someone of such transcendent vision that they said, this person would really understand. It would be... <laughs> it's, a, it's a plausible explanation. It's a plausible explanation. <laughs> Some people choose themselves because they say that would be the easiest. I could not live with any other choice. How many of you chose yourself? Okay. Not so many people choose a friend. That seems like the hardest one. Some people choose a neutral person. They say, well, I have the least bit of emotion tied up with them. Some people choose an enemy because they say, well, that makes the most sense. This is the most... <laughs> be the least lost to the... <laughs> But there's a reason for choosing any of that, but I'm happy to tell you that none of them are the right answer, and that Sharon, didn't, Sharon got the answer right, because she said, I can't choose. That's the right answer. And it's not because you can't figure it out, because there's a good reason, that's why I tell you all those reasons, there's a good reason to pick out A or B or C or D or E, but because... When the mind is clear, you can't choose. You can remember who's who, but you can't choose. This is very important because it comes up around people who say about the enemy, how will I be able to remember not to get hurt by that person if I forgive them? You can remember. You can remember who everybody is 
and still not be able to choose. Because when the mind is clear, you can't choose. There's an odd thing about particularity. In those moments of universal consciousness, of really unity consciousness, where you can't choose, and it's clear that we are all of us one being, some in more distressing disguises than others, but all of us enlivened by consciousness and wanting to be happy. They're actually quite, it's quite a, a, a relaxed place. It's a happy place. There's no alienation. There's no separateness. There's no sense of separate self that needs to be protected. It's really a relief. It's actually the place of fearlessness. It's really interesting about fearlessness and its relationship to loving. One of the things that people notice when they've practiced for a long time is uh, on a behavioral level, we get kinder get more patient, we get kinder. Dalai Lama, when people ask about his religion, says, my religion is kindness. And yet when someone, if someone had said to me 20 years ago, why don't you take up this practice, you'll become kinder. I don't know that I would have been too interested. It's not that I don't respect kindness, but I didn't see at the time that my problem was kindness or lack of it. I would have said, you know, that's not my problem. I'm pretty kind. I'm kind enough. I'm actually frightened. I want something, I want a practice that's going to make me fearless. Kind wouldn't have attracted me. Actually, this is a practice that conditions fearlessness. And at the same time, we become more kind. Because when we aren't frightened, we are spontaneously kind and generous. So I actually got less frightened and more kind. It's actually a, a nice thing to have happen. I like myself better. And I liked myself well then, but it's a wonderful thing to discover that we actually have a tremendous capacity to be noble, much more than we actually thought without, in fact, becoming inflated about it. It's just clear. It's kind of... You see clearly, you see what's the behavior that's going to make you happy, what's not going to make you happy. Sometimes it's a little hard to make the choice that's going to make you happy. It's kind of an impulse to do something else. Because that's that interesting edge of living in a body. We have the capacity for noble realization and we have a nervous system with yearnings and desires and likes and dislikes and a neuromusculature that reacts with fear and particularity. It's so interesting about particularity, you know. If we were to hear that... um, An earthquake happened on the other side of the world today. We'd feel badly about it. 
that, that really probably feel quite badly about it. And then we'd think about something else. I heard about an earthquake that happened in uh, Missouri. And think about that's odd, an earthquake. A little country doesn't happen so frequently in Missouri that there's an earthquake. I guess it could happen here. Maybe we think about it a little bit more. I was in San Francisco um, in October, I guess it's coming on four years ago, when we had a very major earthquake. And uh, I, my particular house, which is very old, stood quite well, but shook. And uh, I was with some people who said we could hear the beams shaking. And they said, this is an earthquake, we should go outside. So we stepped outside and it carried on for 20 or 30 seconds and stopped. And I looked at my watch and my first thought, well, where are all my children at this point? Because I, you know, they all live in the Bay Area. It was around five o'clock. So people are leaving to come home from wherever they are. And I did not think as my first thought, oh dear, there's an earthquake. It's likely to be a lot of people hurt. I thought, where are my people? And I, I didn't think that. I just immediately calculated this one is here, that one's there, this one's here, that one's there. Didn't decide to do it, I just did it. I think it's a... I thought about it afterwards as being the way in which viscerally, before we think, we are connected in relational ways to particular people. And so that's really the, the, the great and interesting challenge of becoming uh, clear-minded, uh, becoming wise, is to somehow uh, touch in frequently enough to the great pleasure of having everybody as your child so that it becomes a place where we live more. Not that we forget the particularity of our own people, but that we can live in both of those places meaningfully. I remember one of my children was... Uh, a gifted dancer when she was a child. And uh, she uh, uh, studied in San Francisco with the ballet company. And she had parts in the Nutcracker every year. And every year she graduated up to uh, more and more sophisticated parts. And I certainly hoped that someday she would be the Snow Queen. And uh, it certainly was not all the same with me, whoever's child got to be the Snow Queen. <laughs> And one of the things that happened that I noticed about particularity of, of affectful bonds is when she was quite little and they did the Nutcracker every year, one of the roles that she played was one of the feet under the Chinese dragon. <laughs> now, if you have seen Nutcracker, you know in some productions there's a very long Chinese dragon and it's carried across the stage by eight children eight little girls at all the same size, sort of eight, seven or eight-year-olds. And they all have black tights, and so you have eight pairs of black tight legs sticking out of a dragon dancing around the stage. Well, from the second balcony, I could tell which legs 
were the legs that I knew well, and they're all eight-year-old girls. <laughs> my housekeeper, who helped me take care of my children in those days because I was working as well, would go with me, and she knew which legs were Emmys. And we both watched those legs. <laughs> and it's not because we're not noble, it's just the way that we are. An interesting thing happened, though, as years went by, as she got a little older, she got to have um, more recognizable parts. And one year actually had a part that was quite distinguished. She was one of the... Um, two children dancing in a ballet with grown-up people. And there was probably a maybe one-minute sequence where she and this other child, in the midst of all this grown-up ballet, actually did a little dance together. It was really quite splendid. It was wonderful to watch her. But then I realized that all of the time until she and this other child made their entry, I was quite tense, worrying about if she would be all right, because she was excited about it. So the time before, the ballet before that one minute, I missed largely, <laughs> thinking about her entry. And then when she was there, it was glorious. She was wonderful. I loved it. I was totally excited for her. And then after she was off one minute, I was so relieved that it had all gone well that I missed the rest of the ballet. <laughs> And then she got older, and uh, years went by, and by and by, for various reasons, she gave up dance. She was too short to be a dancer, really. And she managed it with grace. It had been a thing that she'd planned to do for ten years. And she managed with so much grace that I managed to give up my attachment to it as well. And one of the things that's really quite wonderful is when I go to the ballet, and uh, they do um, Nutcracker. I just really love to watch the Snow Queen. I love it. And I think I particularly love it because I imagine how that person's mother must feel. And I imagine that I am feeling with her how she feels and that her daughter is dancing the Snow Queen. of me and on behalf of Emily and actually I'm enjoying it probably a whole lot more than I would if it were Emily because I don't worry about it at all it's just a completely um, not dispassionate but completely balanced view of it I don't have I haven't got a personal stake in it and it's wonderful to have just a joy that someone can do that so beautifully We really, what we're talking about is how do we tap into that place of unitive consciousness if we are because we're animals with bodies and particular people to whom we are necessarily and appropriately attached. 
we really want to do both, you know. We don't want to just live in that transcendent unit of consciousness. We do remember who are our particular people. Those of us who choose relational lives have made a choice to pick out some people and say, okay, I'm going to really pay more attention to these folks than to all beings. And as our children get older, if we have them, then perhaps we are less focused on them and more able to be focused on a wider range of beings. But it suits the species, I think, for some period of time for us to be quite focused on our own, if that's the route that we've chosen. And if we've chosen to have an intimate life partner, it makes sense to invest that relationship with special feeling and to maintain it if it's possible to do that. And still to live with an awareness of the fact that we've chosen that just as a choice for this lifetime because it's part of the social context of what we live in but that on some other level we really can love quite broadly. It's really the nature of the heart. We make particular choices because it just suits what we're doing in this life. But when we rest in who we truly are, we're not ever lonesome because then everyone is our particular person. And we're not frightened because we are all beings. So how to touch in more to that unit of consciousness is really what we've been exploring all this week. Each of us looking to find the particular key that will help us to relax back into who we are. It's tremendously important to keep that as the, as the image of what we're doing. When I began my practice, I thought that I was developing and constructing special states of loving that were not fundamentally part of who I was and that if I so develop a concentrated mind then great love would arise I would have constructed love and actually I think it's quite the opposite that what we do is we do by using the silence and using the space and using techniques of deepening the concentration of the mind what we do perhaps construct is we construct a specially concentrated mind that contains within it those very qualities of mind that dissolve any hindrances that confuse the mind any hindrances that are clouds that obscure our true nature from shining through and we discover lo and behold that the nature of heart and mind is great spaciousness out of which arise in response to situations that come along an abiding sense of friendly goodwill out of which arises in response to difficult um, experiences in front of us or that come to mind a sense of genuine compassion out of which arise in response to the awareness of pleasure or good fortune, a genuine response of altruistic joy and which fundamentally rests in a great spaciousness of heart. That's exactly who we are. 
And what we are doing here this week is not learning how to do that. We are trying to remember that we already are that. And when we're not doing that, it's because some, when we're not in touch with it, it's because something has obscured it. Something's been in the way of it. It's just a cloud. And either to know that the clouds will pass or dispel. On alternate days, the interview groups are people who are just beginning practice and people who have done quite a lot of practice. So today with a quite a lot of practice groups, and especially with those groups, what I begin to hear is not that people abide in uh, ne- never-ending uh, glorious loving feelings. Everybody has everything. The difference between people who have developed some comfort and awareness about what's the truth of the heart and people who are perhaps just starting is that the people who know that this is fundamentally clouds obscuring the, the, the nature of heart aren't so worried about it. People tend more to say, I'm having a big fit of grumpiness, but it'll pass. Or I'm, I had an explosion of restlessness, but it'll be here as long as it's here. Fundamentally, I'm okay. I think when we begin to tap into that sense of what the nature of the heart is, fundamentally, we're always okay. Kim told me another story about the people at her church. She said they've been doing a lot of metta practice. She's been teaching them a lot of fundamentally, we're always fine. She said, uh, told me the story about um, Brian, uh, David and Ralph. And David died a few weeks ago of AIDS. And she said uh, they begin their service by people lighting candles sitting for a while lighting candles and then those who want to talking about themselves and in the last weeks of his his life David's saying I'm losing my sight now and it's a struggle for me more uncomfortable than I've been but I'm okay and then some weeks after David's death Ralph some period of reflection and sitting, saying to the group, David's gone. I'm very lonesome. I miss him a lot. It's a hard time for me. And I'm okay. And I think what we're practicing here as we sit through all these storms, all of us, is every once in a while we tap into a place where we really feel that that's the truth of us as well. Not just David or Ralph or this or that extraordinary person that we heard about, but us too. We're all okay. Their heart isn't any different from ours. And every once in a while, for even however how briefly, we are not separate from ourselves. And we sit a little bit or stand or walk and we, for a moment, feel our capacity to love. Either to love other people, to love ourselves, it's all the same. 
in the moment that we forgive ourselves. I'm okay. Only has to happen for a moment for us to know that that is the capacity of our heart too, everybody's heart. Incredible in the in the uh, interviews, the groups, and people tell about what's happening with them, and everybody looks around. And for many people, this is a very hard time because here we are, just alone with what's true, and everybody has a story, and we look around and. <laughs> Everybody looks like they're sitting completely tranquil in complete peace. And, and still, when people tell their stories, you know that some people are sitting with radiant joy now, and other people with tremendous pain. And the pain passes, or not so passes. And other, other things come, and other things go. But here we all are. We have a tremendous capacity for supporting our stories and being okay. And actually, I think it's because we actually, it's a reflection of the fact that the heart is tremendously spacious, that we can all hold whatever story it is that we bring that comes up for us. And when we actually hold it for a while, Every once in a while we take a breath and we're all right with it and we're held up by the people around us. If we can say for a moment, it's okay. I am held in this moment. Such a relief. In the moment that we're not frightened, and we're peaceful in that moment. We're really quite free. We've really touched our capacity to forgive ourselves and our lives for being whatever they are, for other people in our lives for being whatever they are. We're very lucky to have this opportunity. Sometimes when we teach the benefactor, we talk about in the time of the Buddha, probably people had the Buddha as a benefactor because he taught them this practice. He's not a bad benefactor. <laughs> when I came in tonight, I was thinking about this talk, which I... I'd thought about all the day on and off. As I mentioned in the beginning, I had all these thoughts all day long about so odd to be giving a talk about the capacity to be infinitely loving and forgiving. And I, here, there's my thought machine grinding out grumpy thoughts all day long. Not feeling actually very good about it. I came in and I looked at the Buddha and uh, I remember Joseph saying last night that one of his reflections is, what if it really were the Buddha? And so I had that reflection tonight. As I came in, I looked. I thought, what if the Buddha was sitting behind me? 
was a very helpful reflection, actually. So I share it with you in case you want to use it. I think there are two ways that we feel that unit of consciousness. Sometimes the mind gets quiet and we don't tell ourselves our story for a minute. When our story falls away, it's all easy. And sometimes we feel the sense of all the other people around. Even without knowing the details of the story, we know everybody's got a story and we're each holding each other up. I feel really supported by Sangha. Either way, those moments of just feeling that the Sangha holds us up so our story gets easier, or the moments when the mind really relaxes and we forget our story for a moment. Relax and feel that we're actually Okay. I like to think that that notion that we started this whole retreat where there's no one in the whole world more worthy of your loving kindness than yourself. We actually feel it for ourselves then we feel it for everybody else. There actually isn't anybody else. So just sit for a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 7, 1996. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.